0: And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox.
1: Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we work every week super hard to give you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. The Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati is holding its annual expo tomorrow night at the Great Wolf Lodge here in Cincinnati. I'm expecting over 50 vendors and about 300 attendees for you to come and meet and network with. This uh, event is free and it is open to the public. If you'd like to RSVP and avoid the registration line, you can do that at cincinnatirea.com. That's Cincinnati R E I A.com my guest today has been in the real estate business since 1965 he is still to this day in the real estate business and he is widely considered to be if not the brightest mind at least one of the brightest minds in the world of creative real estate investing uh, we're going to talk today about how you can use what you have to get what you want. Joining me by phone from his home in Florida is Mr. Pete Fortunato. Pete, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, I know. We should we should have just not called you until after I introduced you because you always get embarrassed by my introductions.
2: Well, I always end up laughing.
1: <laughs> well, no one who knows you laughs. You have a... <laughs> You have a very unique approach to uh, the entire the entire kind of concept of how do people make deals in real estate and how does one how does one look at one's uh, sort of journey through the real estate investing business and I wanted to give listeners a chance to uh, share in that vision today and mm-hmm. uh, I sort of want to I sort of want to uh, start out by. By getting them to talk the same language that you do, uh, a lot of folks have this kind of strange idea that someone's progress through the real estate investing business is is a strategic one. It's you know you start with wholesaling, and then when you've done a few of those deals, you do some retailing, and then you move up to landlording, and then maybe you buy some multifamilies, which would be your natural next step, and then end up somehow in the note business. And that is, that is not at all sort of how you view what that journey looks like. Can you, can you, can you tell us what, what your vision of that is?
2: Well, I certainly know people who followed exactly the journey you just talked about. But my, my vision in terms of what's going on around me is that I'm one of those lucky people who understood early on that capitalism works, and so I aspired to get some capital and so uh recognizing that starting with no net worth when i got out of high school i had to go out and acquire the assets that would make it possible for me to be free and do whatever i wanted to do and so i went out and learned everything i could learn about for example i took um very outstanding tax courses when I was earning $4,000 a year. So I wasn't learning about taxes to shelter my $4,000. I was learning about taxes so I could help others. And many of the transactions I made when I was a paid real estate agent, when I was being started, were 1031 exchanges and some installment sales that enabled people who were – Further along, there were state builders or enders uh, to, to defer tax and maintain their yield or increase their yield or minimize their management. And so in doing that, uh, I was able to earn my position in some of the deals, get myself some equity, and um, go forward to finally uh, have enough income from the rentals that I acquired um, to, to fund my lifestyle.
1: Very good. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to audience members who would like to ask Pete Fortunato a question at 877-772-9658. You can also send your questions to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is the wonderful, incomparable, brilliant Pete Fortunato, who is joining us by phone to talk about how we could maybe look at our real estate uh, journeys a little bit differently and look at how we can interact with people who are in other stages of their real estate journeys to everyone's benefit uh, now, Pete, as you know, one of my big interests in this whole topic is around uh, a project that we're launching at Cincinnati RIA and at CoRe to uh, try to make it easier for folks to understand how to interact and also uh, how to do it, because it is it is an extremely common uh, complaint at RIA groups all over the country that new investors will say, "Well, these guys who are experienced—they don't want to give me the time of day. I ask them out to lunch, and I offer to pay for it, and they—they they turn me down, and they act like they act like I'm just bothering them." And then, of course, the more advanced people will say, "Man, these new investors—they—they they come up to me ten times a meeting, and they think a lunch at Wendy's is—is is like to pick my brain is like a big, you know, a big benefit to me." C- can, can you talk about what's going on there? Like, where, where is the disconnect? Uh,
2: well, I think the disconnect is all around America, because you've got people who are jealous of one another, as opposed to people who are truly capitalist, entrepreneurial, and want to build and understand that because I have something doesn't mean you have left. Um, when, when, when I took uh, Andy Phillips, who was, a, who was a dear friend we lost last year, out for his birthday, uh, he and I went out to Taco Bell, got the senior drink for free, and we each got the $0.99 cent special, so it's ninety-eight for the two of us to go out. So it's not about how grand the meal is. It's about scheming together for the betterment of both of us. Uh, and again and again and again, we build our estate, get enough assets, so that we can have freedom. Well, so the freedom requires young, optimistic, hardworking people who have time. And again and again and again, those friends of mine who are enders, meaning they have enough assets, have looked to younger people getting started as managers who are hired for the management or who did a sandwich lease for the management or did a lease option. Um, I have a very dear friend who, when he got into his 80s, now we have meetings here where I live in Florida that are commonly uh twenty to seventy people uh from all walks of the entrepreneurial and capitalist world. I mean there are people that are looking to get a job painted, there are realtors trying to sell your properties at retail, there are lenders looking to lend money, but all of us bring something to that room that make it that that help us. Uh, And my friend, when he got into his 80s, he had a great portfolio of nice homes, and he would lease options to some of the younger guys getting started, and they would pay him $5,000 for an option to buy 20% of a house and lease it for $200 less than retail, thereby enabling them themselves to have some cash flow and some of the growth and maintain the property and enabling my friend and his wife in their 80s to travel and do the things they enjoy doing. That's a natural. My, my most important deal in my entire life, I made in 1970 uh, when I bumped into an old guy who was in his late 40s <laughs> who was tired of management and he carried the note for me on a seller finance transaction um, and introduced me to his banker as we got the banker to allow me to buy subject to the mortgage. Well, those two connections, those two allies, were enormously beneficial to me my entire life. And at that point in time, I only had uh, a very few rentals. I was, I was still in college. And to have John uh, make that deal with me and to have me be able to clean up that apartment that had been left a mess. And it really was a mess in his eyes. But to me, all it screamed opportunity uh, when I was 20 years old. And he and I did 27 transactions over the next 30 years um, as a result of doing that first one. And each of us benefited by the other activities and caring for one another. The uh, people he referred me to were yet another uh, benefit for me. Uh, I've I worked hard on my Roth IRA because I want the, the tax shelter that the Roth IRA allows. And so one of the things that I did in 2003, maybe, is I made a, a mistake. I went from the Roth IRA, IRA to a rehabber who failed. And I did not want to take the property into my Roth IRA. I surely didn't want guys with a power saw in one hand and a beer in the other uh, representing or working for my pension, my, my uh, IRA. So in that case, I got a young guy who had only, had, who had only one property at that time to buy the property subject to the mortgage that was owed to my Roth IRA. And then we negotiated a modification of the mortgage so that it worked for him and he could afford to buy it and clean it up and rent it and have some cash flow and survive. And it it protected my IRA and me. And that young man and I have done a number of deals And he's now an estate builder, and he's on his way to one day being an ender, where I'm sure he'll turn and look to see who he can help. Um, Another young man and his wife were doing their first buy and hold, and they've done exactly what you were talking about uh, when you started. They were buying and flipping. They were signing contracts and buying and fixing and, and selling. And they wanted to hold something, but they were unable to get long-term financing. And I had my IRA fund that deal for 20 years because they gave me an interest rate and they shared the equity, and so I didn't mind holding for a long period of time. And whether it comes to me or to my children, I'm delighted with those kinds of transactions. And. In each and every marketplace, there are the, the starters, the estate builders, and the, the enders, and then they break down to managers who want annuitized income, like to have that $100 a month. Speculators who wanted to get a contract or get a, get a house and sell it to make a profit. Uh, business people, realtors and uh, real estate agents, uh, and Rehabbers who fix and who fix inventory and then sell it. And then the most important part of the real estate industry, from my perspective, is the users, the people who enjoy property. And my career has centered around acquiring houses with terms that enabled me to rent those houses to nice folks in nice neighborhoods. And they would pay for and take care of those houses for me. And then I just have to keep breathing long enough so that those properties mature. And when you're as old as I am, and you've owned property since 1970, you look really, really smart. Just let 50 years go by and you'd be shocked at how smart people think you are.
1: (laughs) Now, Pete, you talk talk a lot about other people in the business in terms of allies and catalysts where many times you'll hear you'll hear the words competitor and and maybe colleague used out in the in the in the real world yeah. you 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 truly do look at like every person you meet as is this a potential ally or catalyst right
2: the most important thing i earn from every deal is the ally that i do business with because if i close on a deal that's, That's the nature of capitalism. You give better than you take. That is, by definition, what happens. Otherwise, the transaction would not have closed. People like what you gave them more than they like what they gave you. So when I make that deal, I've earned an ally. And for me, typically, it's a seller or an exchanger of property. But now, when I've got it, I find myself in a position where I need someone to pay for it. So i got to find a user, someone who wants to enjoy that house and that neighborhood, who will pay me enough money to pay the debt if I have debt on it, or to pay me an income that will enable me to survive. So that user is a very important catalyst. Now, other times, I get a property that needs some work. I know that's shocking, but sometimes properties do need work. So that means... I need a catalyst in the form of someone who's a contractor, who's honorable and competent. Um, I find people continually, now that I'm in my 70s, I find people continually who are at the ender stage of their estate building, or they've just got extra excess property, and they don't want to pay the taxes, and then put the money in the bank and not have enough income to live on. So those people need someone who can buy and manage that property, who will make a promise to them of income and enable them to do an installment sale. And that income is so important to them. Um, I talked to a lady in Massachusetts who sold a home for $200,000, which I know in Massachusetts they think it's a low income, but in any case, it was a rental house she had. She bought for $70,000 years and years ago, and she bought it. She then sold it when the tenant moved out, and she paid $38,000 in closing costs and taxes, and she put $162,000 in the bank. And when I sat down with her, it was paying her thirteen dollars and 50 cents a month in interest. Now, in my world, I wouldn't let that happen to someone I care about. I know people who would like to buy that property, who would be thrilled to death to have that seller carry a mortgage at 4%, which is $8,000 a year if it's interest only which is $660 a month as opposed to $13. And to have those kind of avenues to enable you to have a better life and give an opportunity to a young person is its just so valuable and so helpful to your entire economy. My fourth house I bought for $50,000 was 10000 in cash that I didn't have story of my life, <laughs> but I I borrowed the $10,000 in cash from the tenant in my second building. And had I not talked to the tenant and said, gee, you know, the bank wants back in those days, the bank wants 9% from me, and I knew she had money in the bank because i taken her application when she moved in. I said, you have money in that bank. What are they paying you? She said, well, they pay me 3%. So I agreed to pay the tenant 9% that the cash I needed to buy that house. And she got three times. Back in those days, instead of getting $25, she got $75 a month. And it was mutually beneficial. And so I see all the people I deal with as potential allies. And then once we've closed, absolutely as allies. And those people I bought houses from, sold houses to, which I've done very little, uh, leased houses to, financed properties for, they are my allies, and I am an ally to them. I I had a mortgage on one of my houses for many years with friends um, who lent me the money because I could pay an interest rate that was much higher than the bank was paying. And they knew me, we, so we had a rapport, and they they believed me to be trustworthy and confident. So they, I owed them a substantial amount of money. And uh, two years ago, uh, the family called me and said the father, who was my friend, uh, was going into the hospital, and it was uh, they were concerned, and they asked, could I pay them back? Well, this was on a Friday. And so over the weekend, I didn't get much. I made a couple of phone calls. But then on uh, Monday night, we have a meeting here in Pinellas County where 50 to 70 real estate people meet. And so I got up and I explained that I had a first mortgage on a nice house that I owed to one of my friends. And he he was in the, the hospital. And would anybody lend me the money or would anyone like to buy that note mortgage? from the family, and then I would pay whoever bought the note and mortgage, and three people at the meeting said, yeah, we'd like to either lend you the money or buy the note and mortgage, and one of them had a Roth IRA, and so I was delighted to have my friend's note sold to my other friend, Roth IRA, and so I no longer paid Mark. I was now paying uh, Bob's IRA. And those are the kind of things that happen when you spend your life talking to people and asking, how can I be helpful? I'd like to see if I can be helpful. There's nothing threatening about that and understanding that the reason these opportunities come up is because people have an uncomfortable circumstance. My first house came up because the, the couple that owned the house uh, had been offered a, a big step up in his career, but it was 1,400 miles away. So the house, which didn't change in value if you had an appraisal go by, an appraiser go by, changed big time in value to him because a house that's 1,400 miles away from your job is very, very useless for him. And so it became an anchor instead of becoming a, a wonderful asset. And so I was able to buy that house because of what had gone on in his life and because I cared enough to ask what, why would you sell a nice house like this? I cared enough to ask the year before if he discovered an excess house, would he give me a call? And so I really am somebody who goes out and solicits help and I try to return that by helping every chance I get.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very good. And Pete, we've got a, we've got some questions backing up here in the email box. But uh, before we get to them, we need to take a quick break. If you have questions about working with other people, how to approach them, what you have to offer, especially if you're a new investor, you can give us a call at uh, 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. My guest today is Mr. Pete Fortunato, a guy that if you don't know him, you should. And I would be remiss if I neglected to mention that Pete is going to be the featured speaker at the April 4th Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting, uh, where his topic is wealth is a team team is no wait wealth building is a team sport i keep messing that up it's not wealth is a team building sport it's wealth building is a team sport and uh, i was talking to pete a little bit earlier on the phone and he said that um, anybody who wants to come with uh, potential deals that need some structuring he would be happy to hang out after the meeting and uh, talk about that, and that is an offer that y'all should take him up on. Uh, you can get a free guest pass to that meeting at Uh We do expect a full house that night. Pete doesn't get up to Ohio very often, and when he does, it's usually standing room only. So com date is April 4th for that. Um, Pete, if we could go to some listener questions here. Uh, sure. You're you're very well known for uh, not just doing deals that involve sometimes multiple people, <laughs> not just you and a seller, but sometimes there's
2: yeah, you, you never see a deal that involves just uh, two people
1: yeah but you're sometimes so you
2: normally have a catalyst who's a lender when you just get a, a seller and a buyer well I'd sure lender,
1: yeah but then you also have the then you also have somebody who's lease optioning it from you so that they can do the management but they also own part of the deal yep. and then there's a guy who rehabbed it who's got part of a deal and it mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got you've got five six people in some of these deals yeah
2: but a ma- majority of my my transactions uh, at the very least involve the seller myself and a tenant that's that's Absolute minimum because someone's
1: gonna pay for it and it can't be me because I'm penniless. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. True story. Uh <laughs> y- you're you're also you're also well known for um doing doing deals without uh benefit of institutional lenders. And I think that this question is probably from someone who's aware of that. This is Kevin in Columbus. He says How does Pete go about completing the paperwork on his creative deals? Does he have a lawyer and title company on retainer and speed dial? Does he just draft the docs by hand and then give them to the recorder's office? Creative deals don't lend themselves to standard template documents, so how does he make sure that they are properly, legally recorded, drafted, and that the other party doesn't back out? Uh,
2: Well, okay. First thing, deals are built from, uh, from a rapport. And the agreement we reach is the contract. Once we've reached an agreement as to what's in it for them and what's in it for me and what we're going to do, I then draft the written contract, which is absolutely not enforceable. I have no intention of enforcing it. If they do not want to close, then I will not close, it's that simple. If you make a career out of enforcing contracts, don't be surprised when you have no allies. I do the majority of my business as repeat and referral business, and and forcing someone to do something they don't wanna do is not a part of it. So I learned to draft documents in English class, where they taught me to write clearly, and understandably and then I take that contract which I wrote which is usually one page if it's, it was a really complex deal, it might possibly be two pages, but it'd probably be font size twelve and double face. So it is clearly understood because that's what a contract is, it's the meaning of the mind. I then take that contract, the written contract, because that really is simply the escrow instruction to a title company or to an attorney. I rarely use attorneys because attorneys have trained in legal and illegal as an alternative to right and wrong, and my world is a right and wrong world, not a legal and illegal world. I use the same title company at least 80% of the time, because I've got 30 years with them. I understand them. They don't hesitate to question me and say, what are you doing now? Why are you doing this? They know enough to realize I'm not going to enforce anything. So if the seller, um, assuming I'm a buyer in this instance, if the seller said, gee, I didn't understand it that way, I thought Mr. Fortunato said, They know enough, not to say, oh, no, that's not what it says. They know enough to talk to me. And so when we close, we close with happy people. I I I am totally a believer, and my life I think is proof that people do business and are bettered by the business they do all the time. So I go through the same title company for my closing when I have control. When I don't, I've had people who have a relative who's an attorney or uh, a relative in the title business who have gone to someone other than the the title company I use most of the time, and I've never had an issue with them either because I go and sit down with them before the closing. I see the HUD one before the closing, so I don't get surprised at the closing. And um, I find I got relatively simple paperwork, I differentiate tremendously each each piece of paper according to the people I'm dealing with and the uh, the agreements we've made. For example, if I borrowed money from someone, I'm going to use a promissory note that says I promise to pay in return for a loan that someone's given me when I buy property from someone, and I'm giving them a note for equity, not for money. I use a purchase money note, which has not a borrower and a lender, but instead a buyer of property and a seller of property. So I make it as clear as I can when I write it what it is we are doing. And um, that, that's the way I document my my transactions and that's the way I negotiate it's face to face with the people saying this is where you are this is where you could be uh would you like to do it I'll give you uh, one quick example uh some very good friends of mine here and their friends who've done business they had a house that they were trying to sell and uh, they were they were willing to sell it subject to an existing mortgage and I said to them in the event that I could arrange you to get $5,000 each Christmas for the next six Christmases. Is there any reason why you wouldn't do that? And uh, Dick said, Well, I'll think about it. And his wife said, No, there's no reason why we couldn't do that. And we did.
1: Got a question here from Lee in Loveland. She says, I'm listening to you and Pete. While I'm at work, I have a very general question. I'm trying to find more leads for motivated sellers. I've tried door-knocking, postcards, talking to realtors. However, a lot of them seem taken aback by the idea of subject to or seller financing. How would you approach these kinds of situations?
2: Okay. Well, of course, people are going to be concerned about selling subject to because it's not anything they've ever heard of. Uh, Seller financing, if I go to someone and say... Would you be interested in seller financing or worse? If I say, would you be interested in a creative deal thereby frightening them to death? Uh, That's not anything I would ever do. My sources were, I went out in the neighborhoods I like. And from my perspective, I want to buy nice neighborhoods. I don't mind if the house is not great, but the neighborhood needs to be great for me the neighborhood that's going to be great is going to have a big active church, really good private school, uh, community center, maybe a big and active, well, for example, we have, uh, in my area, we have Bay Pine Veterans Hospital, and the neighborhoods around it are are friendly, and, and they look after one another because of that community around the hospital. Those kinds of communities are most important to me. So I go, and I... Knock on doors in those neighborhoods. Now, I'll tell you, I have knocked on doors, um, for many, many years, do it less now, though I still will go do it with, uh, usually with younger folks just to keep trying to introduce them to it. I have never bought a house knocking on doors. I've recruited allies knocking on doors and weeks or months or even years later, I get a phone call saying, Mr. Fortunato, my neighbor said you're interested in the house. Are you still interested? That referral makes it easier for me to sit down and say, why would you sell a nice house like this? And then see what I can do to help those people out. Hmm. That the is for the is very important today because the people have an alternative, which is put the money in the bank and it's so little interest their money runs out. And I, people don't should not want their money to run out. And I tell people all the time, an old Jack Miller quote, it's inconvenient to be physically alive and financially dead. You want your capital to outlive you. And once we've had that discussion, many, many, many people will carry that financing. I, I have one property that I bought when I was 69 years old. The fellow was also 69, and we negotiated 53 years and four months, on like
1: Interesting. Interesting. And actually, this relates to a question that we just got from another listener, but we need to take a quick break before we before we get to that question. Uh, if you have any last-minute questions, we've only got about uh, 10 more minutes on the air. Send them to askvina at com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Avina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Pete Fortunato, and we are talking through some things about how how we maybe stop thinking about real estate in terms of just surely the numbers and the financing and the creative ways to do deals and start talking about it and uh, to start thinking about it in terms of the other people involved and what we can offer them that uh, they like better than we like and still get the stuff we like a uh, quick question here from uh, JC in Las Vegas. That is a, a little bit like uh, uh, some of the stuff you just talked about, Pete. He says, would you please ask Pete how you should approach opportunities where someone wants to sell their property, but you don't want to buy that property. <laughs> what questions should you ask to see if there are still benefits to anything you can do?
2: You start with, why would you sell a nice house like this and find out what's going on? You know, I, mean, I, I had a lady who, when I asked her why she'd sell a nice house like this, she, she started to cry, and her husband had passed away, and uh, she couldn't afford the house. Well, having talked to her for a little while, we found out that she needed $300 a month in order to be able to afford to keep her house, and so I bought an option from her, which created $300 a month, so she could keep her house. And I agreed, she we agreed that I had the right to buy it in five years, so she could let her kids finish school in that in the house they'd grown up in. So I didn't buy the house, but there was still profit there. Um, I ha- or there was potential profit there. I had a uh, uh, a friend whose husband passed away who had a house out of state. And I don't want a house out of state. I want houses nearby so I know exactly where my money's invested in the neighborhoods around the, the big churches and schools and community centers that I like. But I bought her house with a note. I secured the note on one of my houses here in Pinellas County, and I just sold her house Uh, for cash and use the money to pay off institutions. So instead of having an institution on the other end of the phone, if I wanted to do something with the property, I had a human being who I could call up and talk to. And so that was a huge benefit to me. I had a house that I had uh, subject to institutional mortgage on it. I got rid of the subject to, eliminated the institution, and uh, now i got a very nice lady who lives just three miles away
1: I pay every month. Hmm. So let's let's wind this back around to how how people can be more comfortable approaching other people when they are at different stages in their career and specifically uh, because these are the folks who seem to have the most difficult time Doing it or getting anywhere with it, the the starters um, who who he, by the who by the way Pete are not all young. We've got no, <laughs> I,
2: I have many starters who are uh, they need the tax benefits because they're earning tremendous income, but they don't have any assets, so they got to keep working for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. I, I I talked to someone the other day, and he's making extraordinary money flipping and assigning contracts. And he has uh, sold, or claimed when he talked to me, he has sold 200 contracts for real estate in the last two years. And I said, well, how many of those did you keep? And the answer was zero. So he has no assets. He became a typical American who's going to be 65 years old and have no assets providing their income. So they have to uh, keep working or go on the dole. And if you're love what to do by all means keep working but you'd like not to have to mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. so so a typical starter what they want is for experienced folks to uh share their knowledge share their connections share their money well, ideally <laughs> but
2: I, I find is the, the best place for a starter to start is with management because the enders who have assets want free time that's why they've got the assets and so the, the, the first house I bought was because Albert and his wife were being sent 1,400 miles away. They needed someone to pay the mortgage for them. And so I bought the house subject to when I paid the mortgages. I, I, I rented it. The tenants paid the mortgages. Um, the house I bought from John Pochas when he was you know the old guy who helped me out when I was in my very early 20s was a house that the tenant had moved from and left it a map. And and really not damaged, it just was a big mess, and he was unhappy. So for me, at age 20, or probably 21, when I made the deal with John, uh, I promised to pay him $12,000. Remember, we talked about 1970. I bought the house from him for $35,000, uh, $125 a month. And I took on the vacant apartment uh, in the three-family house, and I rented that place. And I paid him, and I paid the first mortgage. I developed a great relationship with John. I developed a great relationship uh, with the Beverly Cooperative Bank. And um, it, it paid all of us. And that was when I was a starter. But management is probably the easiest, the best currency that a starter can use mm-hmm. uh, we, we did a deal with an older gentleman who had a house here on the beach I mean a saltwater front house that he and his wife in their retirement had tried to manage and they had had 16 turnovers in 10 years and so we leased the property for the next 10 years and promised them the same amount of money they'd made in the prior ten. Uh, in return for them never getting another phone call and they were delighted to never get another phone call so that that requires n- next to no money we moved in we rented the property from the get-go um that that's that, that an excellent starter deal
1: what what other sorts of um of value do start because they they have a starters sometimes have a hard time conceiving of what they could possibly have that an estate builder or an ender could want?
2: Well, when I was a starter, and I, I was a starter with zero. You know, I, I graduated from high school. I had no assets. I used to show real estate in the car I borrowed from my dad. But I took courses every minute, and my ability to structure a tax-deferred exchange won me some equity, made me some profit, got me some benefits in a deal. My ability to talk about an installment sale and how valuable that is to certain people, that tax knowledge enabled me to buy property with seller financing. And no matter where I go in the country, I hear that nonsense about, oh, you can't do that here. And I've done it and enabled people and talked with people and seen it done in every part of the country. And in every part of the country, people would rather get more than less. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the tax training uh, paid big dividends for me. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the point where you have relationships with other people, then when you get a call and they say, um, I, I want to sell, I'm having a problem with something, your response is, I'd like to see if I can help, and then... Try being quiet and listening and see what's going on because you're never going to find a good deal. There are not good deals out there in the real world. There are opportunities in the real world. It's your job to construct a good deal, and you don't know what it is. I made a deal with an older gentleman who had a three-bedroom, three-bath, two-story house, and he was being squeezed by his cost, by his mortgage, Now, at that point, I was an estate builder. I had a number of houses. I traded him my three cheapest little houses. He then moved into one of those houses and had two rents coming in. Instead of having a big house that he had to maintain and pay for, he had two tenants paying about 80% of his cost. Now, if I were just starting, see, I delivered my houses, but... If you were a starter and you could put that deal together, there are a lot of estate builders who would be delighted to put the three houses up to get the nice house. And as a starter, you could then lease or lease option the houses because both sides of that deal won't want to do the or won't be dying to do the management. And that management is an opportunity for the starter to get into the game.
1: Very good. Pete, we are unfortunately out of time. We are very much looking forward, though, to seeing you here in Cincinnati on April the 4th, where you'll have an hour and a half on a whiteboard and time to draw out deals. And um, I know folks will get a lot of value by coming out to see you. So
2: I, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I'll be fresh off of uh, a birthday party for my 4-year-old granddaughter, and so I'll, I'll try to get a little bit of rest before I come and take on your crowd.
1: Very good. Thank you, Pete. Uh, more information about Pete's appearance here in Cincinnati and a free guest pass at CincinnatiRia.com. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.